Hello, good people. Welcome to experience number 26 for What's True for Everybody. This is summer camp number seven, and it is called Freedom, Greatness, and Future. Freedom, Greatness, and Future. Several years ago, my family and I lived in Houston, Texas, and I decided that I was going to try stand-up paddleboarding for the first time. Have you ever been stand-up paddleboarding? Yeah, now the question is, where did you learn to stand-up paddleboard? Because I talked to some people who uh, did this on a regular basis, and they said, oh yeah, go to this lake nearby, and they have lessons and rentals, and it's easy. You, you, you'll get it in like a second. And so I thought, okay, um, except I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to Galveston, Galveston, Texas, the island of Galveston, which is on the Gulf of Mexico where there's actually waves. And so I did, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to pick this up like that, like my friends have. And so I not only rent a paddleboard and a paddle, but I rent a a guide, like a teacher for an hour who's going to teach me how to paddleboard in the Gulf of Mexico. And so we get to the water and we start paddling out like you would if you were surfing. And by the time, by the time I got out to where we were going to stand up paddleboard, I was already exhausted. I'm like, what? I don't know. This was part of the deal. And, uh, out of the hour lesson, I spent the first half hour just trying to stand up on my paddleboard. Every time I got up, I would stand up for maybe two seconds, probably not even then a little tiny wave would come and I'd be off. So, you know, like that throw up feeling you get when you're so exhausted, that's the feeling I had after 30 minutes of just trying to stand up and falling off and trying to get back on the board. The next half hour, <laughs> I was like, I'm done with this. The next half hour I spent with my guide just sitting on the beach and talking about life, <laughs> things that mattered. It was a really good conversation, but I was like, I can't do this. I got to try again <laughs> someday. Uh, the problem was my friends had learned to paddleboard on a calm lake. And that's not where I tried to do it. I tried to do it in the waves of the Gulf of Mexico. And in this moment, have you ever had this thought? This was supposed to be easy. <laughs> what the heck? This was supposed to be easy. When have you had that thought? Was it a relationship? Was it trying a new activity? Was it in school, a <laughs> class? This was supposed to be, was it life? <laughs> When I was in college, my first friend in college was a guy named Don. We met the first night I got to college. It was fresh. It was the first day of freshman orientation. He was also a Chicago boy going to school around the lake in western Michigan. And we ended up living on the same floor our freshman years. Our sophomore years, we ended up uh, being roommates. Our junior years, we ended up being roommates in, in a house with some other guys. And uh, Don and I were tight. Now, both of us grew up in, in homes where our families uh, were followers of Jesus, and, and we would have told you we were followers of Jesus, but if you watched us live, <laughs> our everyday actions would have told you something different. And so there was this one night, it was the summer going into our junior year, and we were both in the Chicago area, and he had this transfer, transfer, transformational experience with Jesus this one night uh, at home, in his parents' home, and uh, he felt Jesus just saying to him, all right, you got to give me all of you. And so Don said, yes. And he knew right then, like, okay, my life has changed now forever. So he goes into his parents' room where 
they're either in bed or getting ready for bed, and he and he tells them about this, uh, what just happened to him, and they're happy, they're they're weeping tears of joy, and because uh, parents aren't dumb, they they knew what was going on, and then his dad said these words to him. He said, "Now the battle begins." Well, what's he talking about? Why? You give your life to Jesus, things are supposed to like get better. What do you mean now the battle begins? What was his dad saying? Here's what his dad was saying. It's like, there's, there's going to be waves here. <laughs> you're about to paddleboard, not on a calm lake, but you're about to paddleboard on waves in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah, this is the best decision you could ever make. But uh, it's not going to be <laughs> the easiest thing in the world to be a follower of Jesus in a world uh, where our culture wants us to, to act differently. Now the battle begins. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not easy. Why? Because easy, as we know, is lame and unbiblical. God, Jesus doesn't call us to ease and comfort. What Jesus calls us to is purpose. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the calling of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And by the way, calling, we'll use this word again in, in the next experience, but calling simply means uh, what what Jesus would have you do with your life. That's pro- that's a simple way to put it. What Jesus would have you do with your life. So we're going to look at the, the calling of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Then uh, we're going to talk about a quote by a pastor named Erwin McManus. And then uh, we'll end by me talking about the time I knocked myself out at Wrigley Field, which some of you have heard the story, I'm sure. But uh, there's a little addition to it if you haven't heard that part. So first, the call of Moses. Exodus chapter 3. Here's what's going on. God's people are being uh, enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. So they're away from their land, Israel. They're, they're away from their home. They're seemingly away from their God. God is seemingly absent and silent. So something and like things look hopeless. Something needs to happen here if you're one of God's people. And uh, God says this happens in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He's working for his father-in-law. Come on, who doesn't want to do that? The priest of Midian. Not only is he his father-in-law, but he's like this, this high up reputable dude. And he led the flock. Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Oh man, things happen on mountains in the Bible. Remember a few experiences ago, Jesus giving the great commission to his disciples. That happens on a mountain. Uh, tons. Of, if you see a mountain like if in, in happening in the Bible, something's going something's gonna to go down here. Story continues. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. <laughs> I always wonder if that's how he says it. I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. By the way, when you talk about calling and what Jesus would have you do with your life, step one, okay, here I am. I'm here, Lord. I'm present. I'm listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What is it you want to say to me? Here I am. And then goes, God goes on to tell Moses, uh, take off your sandals, buddy, because where you're standing is holy ground. He says, I am 
the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm like the one your ancestors have worshiped. I'm the real deal here. If, my, if I had a Twitter handle, it would be at real God. This is me. And he says, I've heard the cry of my people. I know what's going on. My eyes are open. I, I, I see their suffering and I don't like it. And so what I am going to do is I am going to bring them out of Egypt. I am going to free them, save them, however you want to say it. And I am going to use you to do it. Then he says, so I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt, the king of like, he's kind of public enemy number one. He's the one in charge of the suppression and slavery of, the, of God's people. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and I'm going to use you and your interaction with Pharaoh to bring out my people. I mean, this is a big deal if you're Moses. You're just like, you're just working. You're tending a flock. And all of a sudden, it's like the biggest job anyone has ever had among God's people. And God is going to use you to do it. And then Moses, if you continue reading the story, comes up with this laundry list of excuses of why he can't do it. So here we go. First one, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He says, God, I'm nobody special. <laughs> I'm not why would you use me? Why me? Have you ever asked this question? God, why me? This is like the biggest job ever. There's got to be someone better for this job. <laughs> when have you asked that question? When have you thought, God, why me? There's better people for this. Why in the world would you choose me? Has anyone come up to you and asked you to pray for him? And you feel so honored that they would ask you to pray for him. And you're like, I don't even know if I know how to pray you know, whatever that means. I don't know if I know how to pray. Why, why would you have me do this? I don't know if I can do it. Or someone tells you this deep secret they've had for years or decades that they've never told anyone. And it's like, wow, I'm actually in, why me? You could have told this to anyone. This is like, you're trusting me with this. Why me? Yeah. When have you thought, God, why? <laughs> there's gotta be better people for this job than me. Excuse number two, Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses says, uh, God, this might be hard. <laughs> this might be difficult. There might be challenges. Like I might have to think on my feet here. You know, one of you shied away from a leadership opportunity because there might be challenges. Like, oh, this might be difficult. I don't know if I want any part of, of difficult or hard. There was a, a job opening and, and you thought you would be good for it, but you're like, ah, that might be hard. I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, there was a relationship opportunity and, and it could have been great. We're like, ah, that might be difficult. <laughs> there might be some waves that come with that. I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. One of you shied away from a leadership opportunity because Ah, there might be challenges. You had a chance to lead a group at school. You're like, ah, that, that might be hard to get, to get people on board. Excuse, excuse number three, Moses says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? <laughs> God, what, he said, what if they don't follow me? What if they don't trust me? What if they want somebody else to do this thing, to lead this people out? One is that you said no to an opportunity because there were questions about whether or not people would follow you. And so your gut reaction was to just shy away from it. Like, God, what if I start walking this way? And I'm like, come on, guys, let's go. Come on, girls, let's go. And they're all like, no. And they turn the other way. Then what? Then how foolish do I look? 
when you've said no to an opportunity because there, uh, people might not follow you. You had a chance to stand up for someone or stand up for what was right. But you knew there were other people in the group who, who wouldn't have the same opinion as you. And, and you're like, ah, maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut. You could have been the captain of the team. But you thought, maybe they want somebody else to be captain. Maybe they wouldn't follow me as well as they'd follow that person. Moses said, I, <laughs> God, they might not follow me. Comes on with another excuse. He says, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He says, God, I literally don't have the skills to do what you're asking me to do. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. You're asking me to run a four-minute mile, and my best time ever is 10 minutes. There's no way I can do this. When have you thought that? Like, God, I can't do this. You haven't even given me the skills or the ability to do this. Why would you ask me to do this? I can't speak that well. You wanted to ask someone on a date and you're like, I will mess that up in a heartbeat. I can't even get the words out. Yeah, you, you, your, your child is in this season of life where it's going to require a little different parenting style. You, know, you, you haven't even taught me how to do that, God. I, I, can't, I don't have the skills or the abilities to do that. You, you have a chance to take a, a next step in your company and you're like, God, I don't, I don't have those. You haven't even given me those skills. Why would you ask me to do that? I think you're telling me to do this or asking me to do this, but, but I am, I'm quite convinced <laughs> I don't have the ability to do it. And then the last one, Moses simply says, uh, please send someone else. <laughs> he realizes these excuses aren't working. God is not having it. And he finally says, uh, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. So there, God. Find someone else to do it because I don't want to do it. No is my answer. One of you said no to God. God, I know you've been asking me to do this for a while. You've been asking me to walk this way for a while. Um, but my answer is no. I haven't been clear on it before, but now I'm pretty clear. No. All my excuses haven't worked up until now. Uh, your friends are wanting you to do something that you know goes against who you are and, and what your integrity holds and you know God is whispering to you, okay, this isn't a good idea. And you're like, God, no. I'm going to go my own way on this one. When have you said no to God? And so he comes up with this laundry list of excuses. And you know what God's responses to these excuses are? He says, oh, oh you, you think you're nobody special? You're right. You're right. You come from a long line of normal people who I use. And by the way, I'll be with you. This doesn't mean you're special. This just means I'm calling you to do this for my glory. So it might be hard. Of course it will be hard. (laughs) Of course it will be hard. Why? Because easy is lame and unbiblical. By the way, this reminds me of a league of their own. You remember a league of their own, uh, Jimmy Dugan, the Tom Hanks character talking to Dottie Hinson. And he says, she, she says, it just got too hard. And he says, it's supposed to be hard. If it weren't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. I don't do that line justice with Tom Hanks, but good line. It might be hard. Of course it's going to be hard. I'm not calling you to easy. I'm calling you to purpose. And you said, oh, they might not follow you. Yep, you're right. They might not. There are no guarantees. So like get over the I need guarantee. There are none. This is life. <laughs> this is life. This relationship, there are no guarantees. But you love anyway, and you give yourself to it anyway. This, this job and how you get, there are no guarantees. 
you taking this stand for what's right, there are no guarantees. I'm not asking you to lead because there's guarantee of success. I'm asking you to lead because this is what I'm calling you to do and it's the right thing to do. It's like, you don't have the skills and abilities? You're right. You don't. This takes more than you have. But guess what? I do <laughs> have the skills and abilities. And, and as I said before, I'm going to be with you. He says, you don't want to do it? And actually, God gets angry at this. <laughs> there's anger. But then also, I'll give you some help. So he sends Aaron, his brother, to help him. So God just kind of shoots down <laughs> all of these excuses. And, and here's the point. You know what you're guaranteed when you live the life God is calling you to live? Do you know what you're guaranteed when God is using you for great things? Here's what you're guaranteed. You are guaranteed fear and pain and failure. That's part of the deal. So if you're looking to avoid fear, pain, and failure, um, good luck. (laughs) You're not going to live a very fulfilling life when it comes to calling and doing great things for the kingdom of God. But you know what? You're also guaranteed if you persevere and keep going, you're guaranteed freedom and greatness and future. Uh, Erwin McManus, a pastor out in California, has this quote. He says, your freedom is on the other side of your fear. Your greatness is on the other side of your pain. Your future is on the other side of your failure. Yeah, you're guaranteed fear and pain and failure, but you're also guaranteed if you persevere freedom and greatness and future. There is freedom on the other side of fear. There is greatness on the other side of pain, and there is a future on the other side of your failure. Except now, it's not like the same freedom, greatness, and future that you experienced before. This is a new, deeper, this is a hard-won freedom and a hard-won greatness and a hard-won future. It is now like in your bones. Have you ever been through a really hard time and you came out on the other side of it and you were just different because you couldn't not be different after dealing with that and after healing from it and dealing with it well? Yeah, so we're going to talk about these things. Here we go. First, uh, fear and freedom. Fear, how would you define fear? Uh, fear is, it's this distress, this, this negative distress of, of uncomfortableness or danger or, uh, uh, yeah, uncomfortableness of, of danger. Um, that's how we define fear. And Moses, Moses' excuses, all of Moses' excuses that we just listed, they're all based on fear. They're all based on this uh, uncomfortable sense of this is going to be hard. This might be dangerous or, or this might be lonely. Uh, what is it you're afraid of? When has fear kicked in and, and started to make decisions for you? When is it we've talked about before, we are to be guided by love and not fear. When have you been guided by fear? The disciples, by the way, they, they were guided by fear a lot. <laughs> Read through the gospel stories. There's this one time when they're, uh, they're on a boat, I'm on a boat and they're rowing and they're, they're not getting very far because there's wind and there's waves and, and Jesus comes walking on the water <laughs> like you do right by the boat. And he tells, and it says that, that at first I thought this was a ghost, and then it t- says that they were afraid. And then Jesus tells Peter, because he knows Peter's the first one who will, do, who will do it, to get out of the boat and walk towards him. Peter gets out of the boat, and he's standing on the water, and he starts walking towards Jesus, and we're told that he gets afraid, and he starts sinking. And so Jesus 
grabs him and pulls him up. And he says, why do you have so little faith? Why are you afraid? God will ask you to do things that you're afraid of. (laughs) God will ask you to face your fears. Remember when we, my family moved from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Houston to take my first job in a church and we moved our, our firstborn, our daughter was three months old. Not the ideal time to move away from your community and your church and family, uh, but that's what we did. And I was scared. I remember going through that process and thinking, God, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> this is, this is scary. I'm going somewhere where we don't really know anyone at, with a job I've never really done before at a time where we need support and community like more than ever. Um, by the way, the community that we got in, in Houston uh, was v- was very much what we needed. It was fantastic. But I was scared. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. You ever do this. No, God, no, I don't want to do this. Uh, I know students who have had to call Child Protective Services because they watched their parent beat up on their younger brother or sister. They were scared to do it. God will ask you to do things you're afraid of. Uh, have you ever had to step out? We'll, we'll, we'll use this phrase, step out in faith. Take a new job or move or end something because it, it just wasn't the best for you. But you knew like every sort of change means some sort of a loss. And so it was going to hurt. It's going to hurt them. It was going to hurt you. God will ask you to do things you're afraid of. But what you learn is there is freedom on the other side of your fear. When you say yes to Jesus, when you actually want to say no, a whole new world opens up and you go through it. And there might be some painful moments, but you look back and say, man, God, I'm glad I said yes to you you on that one, even though I was scared out of my mind. Uh, Fear is about who you aren't. Freedom drives the car. Fear fear is about, fear is in the backseat. Fear is about who you aren't and who you aren't isn't interesting. Freedom is about who you are. And who you are is endlessly interesting. And by the way, in our culture, freedom means to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Like no restrictions. We can do whatever, whenever. That's freedom, right? The problem is that's the wrong definition of freedom. Uh, Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. I mean, you could eat whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted for a month. At the end of that month, you might not feel very free, (laughs) You might actually feel really sick. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. Freedom is the presence of the right kind of restrictions. Remember the Ten Commandments? The Ten Words? Uh, They actually brought freedom. That was the right restriction. God says, this is how you have the best relationship with me possible. This is how you're actually free and your heart can soar. It's not, freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. Next. Pain and greatness. Pain, how do we define pain? Pain is suffering. That's a good enough definition. Pain is suffering. You know, God chose Moses to lead people, his people, out of Egypt and through the wilderness and took a good 40 years uh, or a bad 40 years, depending on your perspective on it. And Moses gets them like to the border. Moses can actually see the land that God is taking his people into where Moses is leading them into. And it's there where God says to Moses, oh, by the way, you're not going in. (laughs) You know how you got him all this way? There's somebody else who's going to get him in there. You're actually going to die before you all get in there. 
imagine the pain for Moses in this moment. Like, what? You make me go 40 years with these friggin' people who are grumbling and complaining and a pain in the butt. I get them all the way down the field to the one yard line. And now you're telling me someone else is going to lead them in the end zone. Not only that, but I'm going to (laughs) die. How painful must that have been for Moses? God, this isn't fair. Why would you do this to me? What's your pain? Where are you suffering? What is it that hurts? You know, Jesus had to constantly teach his disciples about greatness. Why? Because they were constantly like fi- trying to figure out which one of them was the greatest, fighting over who was the greatest. And by the way, whenever, whenever you are trying to prove your greatness, it always comes from some sort of pain. It always comes from some sort of, I have to show myself here. I have to exalt myself here. The disciples were constantly doing this. At one point, James and John's mom was trying to fight for her, her boy's greatness. Like, hey, let, let my son sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. Jesus is like, that's not how it works. So Jesus constantly teaches the disciples, if you want to be great, you got to be the last. If you want to be first, you got to be least. Yeah, if, if, you, if you go to the party, you don't sit at the most important seat. You actually sit at the least important seat. That's what it means to be great in my kingdom. Proving your greatness will always come from some sort of pain. God will ask you to do things that are painful. (laughs) He will ask you to do things that are painful. Have you ever tried to forgive someone who you didn't want to forgive? (laughs) That's painful. That's painful. Have you ever moved away from family because God was calling you somewhere else or you went off to college? That's painful. That's painful. Have you ever had to not hang out with these people anymore for whatever reason? Maybe just dynamics and the relationship have changed. Maybe they're not the healthiest thing for you, uh, but you dearly have loved them. That's painful. God will ask you to do things that are painful, but you know what? what you realize is that there is greatness on the other side of your pain. That's what you'll learn. And and not greatness as the world defines greatness. Greatness in the world is you have the the most notoriety. You have the most popularity. You have the most money. You have the highest status. You have the title that everyone else wants. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the greatness that Jesus talks about. We're talking not about climbing the ladder yourself as fast as you can so you can get above everybody else, but standing at the bottom of the ladder and pushing everybody else up. We're talking about not sitting in the most important seat or trying to have the spotlight on you, but sitting in the least important seat or shining the spotlight on somebody else. That, by the way, for the world is really painful to be lowly to be last, to be least. That's painful. But in the kingdom of God, there is no greater feeling. What you realize, there is greatness on the other side of your pain. And then third, failure and future. How would you define failure? Failure is, is falling down. It's being unsuccessful. Failure is betraying or lying or not obeying your parents, or doing something you know you shouldn't have done, or not doing as, as not giving it your all at work or at home, uh, and knowing that you let somebody down. 
You know, the first time we meet Moses as an adult in the Bible, he is burying the body of the man he's just killed. (laughs) You think you failed? Moses, the man God used to do like the most important job at the time, uh, he was a murderer. (laughs) And then he tried to cover up that he was a murderer. When have you failed? The disciples, by the way, failed all the time. All the time. There's this, here's one of my favorites. Mm, Gospel of Matthew. This is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And Jesus is teaching the crowd and it's getting late. And the disciples say to Jesus, hey, send these folks away. It's been a long day and, and they're hungry. And if we don't send them away now, they might collapse on the way while they're trying to get food. And there's no food around here. And Jesus says, okay, but you don't, they don't, you don't have to send them away. You give them something to eat. Disciples are like, what? And Jesus is like, well, what do you got? So there are five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus takes these loaves and bread. He gives thanks for, or loaves and fish, gives thanks for it and turns it into enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. So a lot more than that. And the disciples pass out the food. Not only that, there are leftovers. Not only that, the disciples go and collect the leftovers. Not only that, there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers. How many disciples are there? 12. So what is the story? The disciples walking around each with a basketful of leftovers thinking, oh, Jesus can do that. <laughs> Jesus, like with Jesus, there's enough where there's actually not enough. I mean, this. a lot of times we think this story is about teaching like the people, but um, maybe this is actually teaching the disciples about what Jesus can do. Next chapter in Matthew is like four stories later. It's the feeding of the 4,000 men. So much more than that with women and children. Jesus is teaching the people and he's like, he says to his disciples, they've been with me for three days and they're starving and uh, I can't send them away. That's not going to go well because they're, you know, famished. And uh, the disciples response is, where could we get enough food in this remote place to feed such a crowd? (laughs) You imagine Jesus just being like, oh my Lord, (laughs) or oh my me, or however Jesus would say that. It's like, were you not with me four stories ago? Do you not remember what I just did? What do you got? And then <laughs> give them what they got. And Jesus turns, then they feed the crowd. By the way, there's leftovers, seven basketfuls, I think this time. I mean, is it any wonder Jesus says things to his disciples like, you have little faith and how long will I stay with you? And my favorite, are you so dull? <laughs> the disciples, they failed a lot. Um, God won't ask you to fail, but you will anyway. <laughs> You will anyway. I I can think of countless times where I've done things I wasn't supposed to do, or I've treated people how I was how I shouldn't have treated them. God won't ask you to fail, but you will anyway. The 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 deceit, um, the selfishness, the unforgiveness, just the falling down. He won't ask you to fail, but but You'll do it anyway. And what you learn, and you know, you, you have these experiences, you know, there's things probably popping up in your mind right now. And what you learn is there is future on the other side of your failure. And we're not talking about the future, like your a future as, as, the, as the world will, would define it, culture defines it, like uh, being set up for the rest of your life, having the extra house, having the retirement home, 
never having to work again because you have so much money. No, no. What we're talking about is the future Jesus talks about, which simply means hope. It's a future of hope. It's, it's the hope that what we've done in the past doesn't define us. It's the hope that we, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, have been forgiven and given a clean slate and given a fresh start. And now we get to spend eternity with Jesus, which, by the way, starts today, not sometime when we die. Now, what you learn is that there's future on the other side of your failure. And then failure just becomes like you're in a boxing ring and failure is your opposition. It's the thing that like keeps trying to knock you down. And maybe it does knock you down, but you get back up and you're like, what, is that all you got? <laughs> is that all you got? Yeah, I failed. I'll own it. That's what I did. But guess what? I have a future. I have hope in Jesus. So I get back up and I keep going. There's freedom on the other side of your fear. There's greatness on the other side of your pain. There is a future on the other side of your failure. We can say it this way. Fear, pain, and failure are a part of the deal. They're just a part of the deal. But freedom, greatness, and future are what will last. We've talked before about the grind. You get up every day. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. You get up every day and you, you try again. You keep going. Sometimes it's three step forward, three steps forward and two steps back. But you get a new chance. You keep learning what it is Jesus would have you do. And you keep, you keep going. You keep getting up. Is that all you got? Is that all you got? I got Jesus. I got hope. I can keep going. Uh, when my kids each turned two, they got a trip with their dad. And my daughter's trip was to go to Florida to celebrate my grandma, her great-grandma's 90th birthday. Our son was three weeks old at the time, and so my wife stayed home with him and my daughter and I. It was our first like out-of-town trip together. It was fantastic. When my son turned two, he wanted to go to Wrigley Field. And so when he was two, we, we took a trip up to, to my mom's and hung out with my mom and my twin brother. And me, my brother, and a friend of ours took my son to his first Cubs game. And the dude was so excited. And so we, we park and we start walking towards the stadium. And I have prescription sunglasses on because I had an eye infection at the time and uh, I couldn't wear my contacts. And so we stop at the souvenir shop because my son wanted to look in and we were going to buy him a souvenir and his sister a souvenir. And I had to use the bathroom. And so I asked this guy in the store, do you have a restroom? And he's like, yeah, it's down these stairs and to the left. So I walked down these winding stairs to this basement where there are no lights on. And I have my prescription sunglasses on because if I take them off, I can't see like three inches in front of my face. Uh, but at this point, I guess it didn't matter if I had them on or not. Cause I couldn't see anything anyway. Cause there's no lights on. And you know, when, you think you're at the last step, like you're going from the last step to the concrete floor, but there's actually one more step. And so I take the last step that I, that I thought was the last step. There was actually one more step. And so my step is a little wider than it would have been if I thought I was walking downstairs and my foot, my ankle, my foot gets caught at the edge of the step and it just snaps. My ankle snaps and I go down in a hurry. And immediately, immediately, like I start blacking out the walls start closing in my head. I start sweating. And my first thought was like, I think I just broke my ankle. Um, and I get up, I drag myself up and I start limping around to try to walk it off. My second thought was, uh, I got, they, they have to take me home. I came, I brought my son a thousand miles to go to Wrigley field. We are a block away and we're going to have to turn around. Like I, this, I, I'm going to disappoint him. Like he's never been disappointed before. I'm going to let him down so bad. My third thought was I still have to pee. (laughs) So I go into the bathroom and 
uh, I go to wash my hands after using the restroom, and I don't know if this happened before or after I washed my hands, but I pass out from the pain, and I go down. I wake up. I'm lying on this nasty concrete bathroom floor in this public building. My hat had fallen off. My sunglasses had fallen off, and the sink is pulled out from the wall, and I have this throbbing headache. So I get up, I I push the sink back in, I look in the mirror, and there is a welt already on just above my eyebrow on my left side, and it is the width of the sink. And so what had happened was I passed out and I went down and nailed my head on the sink. And so I actually don't know if I got, well, I was out. I don't know how long I was out. And, And I apparently tried to brace my fall and pulled the sink out from the wall when I went down. So now I'm bleeding and I'm sweating and I'm in pain and I have this big welt on my head. Um, and so I just like crawl my way upstairs and my brother and my buddy are like, what took you so long? Whoa, <laughs> what happened? So I tell them, I'm like, I got to get out of here. This, I didn't even, I don't even think I pushed the sink back in. I got to go. So they take me next door to this uh, bar next door and they just pump me full of water. And my brother has ibuprofen or Advil or one of the two in his car. And they give me some of that. And uh, thankfully my son's having a blast. Like he knows, he, he thinks he's going to the Cubs game. He doesn't know somehow that I have almost killed myself and I've just knocked myself out. And my brother and friend are doing a great job of entertaining him. And so about an hour later, I try to eat and I eat a little bit. I'm really squeezy. An hour later, um, thankfully we were early enough where I was like, okay, I think I can make it. So I limp my way to the stadium and my son is just like glowing. He sees Wrigley Field. He sees the marquee. We take a picture in front. Uh, and we're actually able to go to Wrigley Field. Now, fast forward two years later. My family is taking a trip to Chicago, and we're going to the Cubs game. My mom and my brother are with us. We go and we park like in the same spot that we parked at two years before. Um, and I am determined I'm going to conquer the souvenir shop. I'm going in there. I'm going to go downstairs properly, use that bathroom, and, and like walk out of there not bleeding and knocked out. And so I go in there and I immediately like, where's your restroom? I got things to do. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's downstairs, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, I know where it is. I just want permission. So I walked down these winding stairs. Uh, two things. One, well, three things. I don't have sunglasses on because I don't have an eye infection. Two, the lights are on in the basement so I can see perfectly. Three, I learned the last step was actually like a double wide step. You know, some staircases, they have the steps and the last step is, is like a double wide step. So what I had done was actually not miss a step, but the last step, um, I needed to take two steps instead of one step. And I got caught halfway in between. And that's where I cracked my ankle and uh, went down. So, <laughs> so then I use the bathroom, wash my hands. The whole family comes down to use the bathroom. I'm like, yes, family, we, we all conquered this. Uh, there is fear and pain and failure. Sometimes we'll get knocked down. We'll let people down. The lights will be off. We'll feel like, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can go on. But then we'll keep going. We'll get up. We'll grind. The lights will turn on. We'll get another shot at it. And we'll, there's such a thing as redemption and restoration. May you fight through the fear, the pain, and the failure so you can truly experience the freedom, the greatness and a future. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace.